Good afternoon. My name's Dr. Andrew Matheson, and I'm here with the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast. As usual, we'll be running through a few different articles that have caught my eye, areas that tend to kind of cross over between medical nutrition, general medicine, sports nutrition, and just highlight some areas where either I think I'm going to change what I'm doing with my patients, or I feel it's, it's really interesting work. The first article we're going to look at is was in JAMA, uh, JAMA Internal Medicine, and called Effect of Moderate and Vigorous Aerobic Exercise on Instant Diabetes in Adults with Obesity, a 10-year follow-up of our RCT, First Officer Chen, Last Officer Pan. And this was a letter that was sent into JAMA Internal Medicine following up and much as it sounds like, a, a, an RCT from 10 years ago, where they looked to see if they could make a difference with a one-year intervention um, using exercise to treat people with diabetes. This was interesting. This, this was them just saying, well, what's happened at 10 years? And it's just a letter. They didn't go into lots of detail, although they have put some supplementary data in there where you can go find a bit more about it. But uh, what I liked about it was just the fact that it just reminds us to we get very focused on diet with diabetes and arguing about the different options or the medications for diabetes. And I think sometimes, me personally, I can forget about the exercise and the, the impact of exercise on it. And what they showed was that after this 12-month exercise intervention that was as well done, um, there was still 10 years down the line a change in the per 100 year, per 100 person years diabetes incidence. So a significant difference and a reminder that actually there's not that many studies that really go into the long term follow up and it's lovely to see something like this where they're, they're going and chasing it down. The main article that I was going to look at today was, now it was from uh, first author Noakes, who, who certainly needs no, no introduction, um, so Professor, Professor Tim Noakes, and uh, last author Volek, and it was low carbohydrate, high fat ketogenic diets on the exercise crossover point and glucose homeostasis. This was almost a number of articles merged into one. It feels sort of slightly like it. It was published in Frontiers in Physiology and it almost feels like it is pulling together a few different stands and just wanting to present um, some ideas all together rather than sort of let it get diluted out in, in a number of different articles. So it was a, a really nice sort of revision of a lot of sort of basic sports nutrition. So it first of all talks about the crossover point, how it different energy, different exercise intensities, slightly different energy substrates are used. So a bit more carbohydrate use, a bit more fat use, and then that changes it as your energy intensity changes. Um, and most people that have done a bit of sports nutrition would be very comfortable and, and, and happy with, with that graph that just shows the different proportions over the different exercise uh, intensities. Now, they, what they t talk about is something called the crossover point, which is where, I suppose, as it says on the tin, you are crossing over for, well, it's a bit of an, bit of an ugly term, isn't it? But you're crossing over from 
fat to carbohydrate energy as the majority um, provider. Now, when you read around the, the idea, it's very easy to slip into um, I'm using fat as a fuel to I'm using carbohydrate as a fuel. And, and I really try hard to avoid that because it's such an oversimplification. Um, and it, it leads to sort of misunderstandings and mistakes in, in what, what's actually happening. It's just a change in, in the proportion. Um, and there's only a slight change. It's just 49 to 50, etc. So first of all, they talk about that. Then they talk, then, so they, they introduce a few ideas. That's one of them. The second one is the idea of your ability to use fat as a fuel, which, um, again, if, you, if you're doing your sports nutrition studying, you'll be aware that there's several different limiting steps on sort of mobilizing your fats, getting them transported, then getting into the muscle, getting them to the right place in the muscle, then the different fats within the muscle all depend on you being able to use certain pathways and enzymes and all of those can be made more efficient and work better like everything in the body if you do it more often and so they talk about fat max values as a shorthand way of, of expressing that and then the third bit they want to talk about is just the the link between um, certain diets in athletes and pre-diabetic glycemic values so the, the first bit, the, uh, the bit on crossover, what, what they were finding was that a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet shifted that crossover point um, to a higher VO2 max. So essentially they're trying to address worries that athletes will come in with when they say, I want to try this, but I'm worried my performance is not going to be as good. And if we if we if we're taking a step back, we'd be saying, well, that's a reasonable concern because we know for some sports, it the data is not great, but it doesn't seem to make much of an impact on your performance. But for some sports, we know that switching off a high from a high carb diet, you have to just need need a little bit of a high carbohydrate diet just to be able to do that very high intensity work to make sure that very high intensity work is done correctly um, and that you're not building in don't, you don't train your body to um, to act tired you don't want it to learn um, to move in, in a sloppy or tired manner so certain training has to be done as as, as high intensity as it can, as correctly as it can. And some sports, is, that is absolutely essential. What they were saying here was that actually your body adapts to a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. Um, and, and yeah, I absolutely believe that. Your body adapts to most things, and it's great to see evidence for it. And I can reassure people in, in many sports that actually... Don't worry about it. Give it, give it a, give it a while. Give it a few months, and actually, you you probably won't notice that you're cycling much slower. For example, the next bit they talk about was the was the fat max. They were what they point out is that the ability to oxidate fat, your fat max, improves. Again, uh, not too surprising. Nice to have a, a a nice big article to always look at to 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 prove it. Um, they cut. They then point out another one showing that um, actually you do do quite a lot of fat oxidation at high VO2 maxes, and that one falls back to this idea that well, of course you do. You, you, um, 
people, if you train people to oxidize fats better, of course they're going to be able to use that fuel better. At all intensities, we use all fuels. It's just we use different proportions of them. So if you train someone very well to improve their fat max, improve their ability to oxidize fat, and then put them in a high VO2 session and measure their peak fat oxidation, they were always using their fats as a fuels then. Now they're just doing it better and you're getting some really impressive results. So nothing nothing that would strike me as particularly surprising, but again also nothing I think that would hugely change for me what I was doing. Um, and then the third bit was they were just talking about middle-aged competitive athletes um, having pre-diabetic glycemic values. Uh, and these were I'm assuming this was essentially picked up because they had everyone on these interstitial glucose monitors, which are fantastic things. And pop them on your athletes know what sends their sugars up and very useful if you're trying to keep to a low carb carbohydrate diet, especially if you've got the money for it. Um, not the tool we would normally use for deciding if someone was pre-diabetic or not. Um, I'm not surprised that the, a number of middle-aged competitive athletes have especially ones who have traditionally had a very high carbohydrate low fat diet would be found to, to be pre-diabetic i'm not surprised that putting any middle-aged person on a high uh, high fat low carbohydrate diet might reverse those changes i'm almost surprised that it's not slightly higher um so i wasn't again hugely impressed with that is it's all stuff that we've seen elsewhere. The, the really nice bit about this was then the way they went to go trying to, so A, well, linking it all together and putting it all in one paper just to read through and, and, and really sort of polish up your how you understand and how you remember these different ideas. But also then just adding in this idea of mitochondrial dysfunction um, and how important mitochondria are in the de development of, of diabetes. I suppose one bit that we often talk about on here is, is is training good or bad for you. And we know elite training is probably not great for you. Training at a very high level, that constant in, inflammatory response um, from the diet you're forced to eat, the training you have to do, the lifestyle that goes with it, the sleep deprivation that's uh, inevitable from, from constant hard sessions, it's, it's not good for you in the long term. I suppose what's interesting with the patients that they were looking at here and, and suggesting that it was, they focused very much on the diet, but what I'd probably actually prefer to have heard them say was, we need to be really careful when we're recommending elite nutrition styles to non-elite athletes, because non-elite athletes don't need them, and actually and this is what this nicely shows in, in this study, is that, that it's quite harmful. Um, so, yeah, I, I, a lovely article, nothing nothing less than you'd expect from someone uh, as amazing as Tim Noakes. Uh, I didn't, didn't like bits of it, and I didn't think any of it was uh, fantastically new or different, but it's it's lovely, and it's one, a, one to have to hand, um, and an easy one to point uh, sort of coaches and patients in the direction of. Um, the next article was um, by Mellon um, and also had uh, Trent Stellingworth as one of the other authors. It was in Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science and Sports and it was direct and indirect impact of low energy availability on sports performance. 
Uh, and just a review article going through a number of different, just summarising the, the state of play on performance and low energy availability. What I'd really been hoping to, to see something on was uh, some bits just on where does fasting, energy availability and performance and health all, all fit in. Uh, I didn't find it, unfortunately. Um, it was a very thorough article, but... Um, Essentially, there's still still a lot of a lot of work to be done on the various areas, and, and they, they 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 didn't have the answers. I think the the one that the most useful thing for these is sometimes just reminding yourself of past articles that you've forgotten of. And there was there's one in particular for me that that I hadn't remember, and it come up the the the, the question had come up in uh, in a discussion I'd had with an athlete earlier this week, and it was um, about ovarian suppression and and does that have an impact on performance? Um, and it was from 2014. It was ovarian suppression impairs sports performance in junior elite female swimmers. Uh, Van Teest is the first author, and they were one of it's one of the few articles that I've seen that that does clearly link a decrease in performance with um, a, a loss of periods, essentially. It's in elite female swimmers, uh, 15 to 17-year-olds. The numbers weren't huge, but they did cover for a, a number of weeks, 12 weeks, to sort of get a whole season's performance, which I, I remember liking at the time. So the final study is one actually look, just looking at COVID and just, just one to, to mention, which I'd found interesting and uh why you bring up now and just because it's actually made me think a little bit harder about some of the results that I when I get my patients results to, to remind myself just to push to ask about when did you have to have COVID when did you last have your vaccination it's called multi-organ impairment and long COVID a one-year prospective longitudinal cohort study uh, Dennis is the first author in, um, in the Royal Society of Medicine journal in it just followed up some individuals over a year that that had COVID symptoms, diagnosed with COVID, 500 or so, uh, 300 or so uh, still had symptoms at one year or still had changes on bloods or MRI at one year. And what I was interested in is what, what were those? Mostly because is that going to throw other investigations I'm doing? Could I, could I mistakenly be looking into other problems when actually it's just... COVID, it just still drags on. And essentially what it pointed to was sort of fatty liver changes, some LDH changes, CK changes, um, and some. it's also got some kidney inflammation and splenomegaly. I'm probably not asking them enough about when they last had their COVID. I'll talk about recent viral infections as a as a cause for um, their sort of surprising liver tests, but actually I, I need to be going further back with, with it in, in at least a year based on this this article. So that's uh, that's it for today. I, uh, I'm going to go off and check on my plumbing handiwork from earlier on. I've discovered that I have an incredible ability to turn a small tap drip into a, uh, a large tap leak. Hopefully that's not happened with, with this, this one I've just fixed in my uh, bathroom. Hope you have a uh, great week. Hope you manage to get plenty of training done and I'll speak to you soon.